Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello, friends. Father Frank Pavone here, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome to Praying for America. It's great to be with you. And tonight I want to review with you and help us all ponder and more deeply understand one of the very key provisions that our founders gave us to make us able to govern ourselves in a way that this republic can last for as long as it has lasted. We'll tell you more about that. The reading I've chosen for tonight goes right to the point of uh, what we're going to expound on one of our key constitutional provisions. So let's go to the Word of God, let's pray, and then let's explore this aspect of our nation's founding. Galatians chapter 5 begins this way in verse uh, 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Let us pray. Father, our founding fathers in America were very aware of the sinful nature. They were very aware of the tendency of human flesh to dissension, selfish ambition, and factions. Lord God, our founders set up this constitutional republic in such a way that it would put barriers in the path of our selfish ambitions, that it would counteract the human tendency to factions, that it would put a check on our passions, that when those passions flare up as they inevitably will, that it would do minimal damage to our ability to govern ourselves and preserve unity, liberty, and justice for all. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that you gave our founders, wisdom indeed that was formed by your word. They knew this very passage that we just read from Galatians. Lord, may we in our day understand and preserve those provisions of our Constitution that protect us against factions. Help us, Lord, 
to understand and to preserve this tremendous form of government that we have inherited. We give you thanks, Lord God, that we in the United States of America are the only nation today still living and functioning under its original founding constitution. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to amend that constitution as needed and yet preserve the stability of this form of government. Give us wisdom. Give us a love of your word. Keep us rooted in those things that will preserve our freedom and our unity. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, friends, uh, let's look at how the founders understood. Here, I'm going to put on my ultra MAGA hat uh, as we talk here. And let's look at how our founders understood this human tendency that St. Paul so well understood and what they did in our government to deal with this, particularly as we would govern ourselves in, in our elections, which we are in the midst now of midterm elections. We're, we're looking ahead already, of course, to the 2024 presidential elections. You know, our founders did not establish a democracy. Now, they were in very, very different, a very different frame of mind from, for example, the French Enlightenment, where the guiding principle was the general will, the general will of the people. Our founders didn't go in that direction. In fact, let me read, and you, many of you are familiar with David Barton and Wall Builders and his, his well-known book, Original Intent. Been using this for years and referring people to it. Listen what some of our founders, signers of our Declaration and Constitution, said about democracies. Now, again, democracy being the sense of the general will, whatever the general will of the people is, prevails, no matter what it is, and simply and directly, just always majority vote, that's it, and, and, and this is what determines everything. That form of government destroys itself. Now, this is, this is counterintuitive. Because we tend to think that, well, you know, majority rules, right? And each person gets one vote and majority rules. Well, that's not exactly the way that our representative constitutional republic works. Let me read, first of all, some of these quotes from the founders. James Madison. Democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention. Have ever been found incompatible with personal security, the rights of property, they have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. This is Madison talking about democracies. John Adams writes, remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There was never a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration, said a simple democracy is one of the greatest evils. Now, now understand, our founders also realized that tyranny is one of the greatest evils. In fact, they founded this country precisely to declare independence from tyranny. But they understood also that pure democracy, nothing other than majority rules, also leads to a form of tyranny. One more quote, Noah Webster. In a democracy, there are commonly tumults and disorders. 
Therefore, a pure democracy is generally a very bad government. It is often the most tyrannical form of government on earth. Now, why is that? You know, it takes a while to understand this, but basically it's because it, it, it doesn't have checks and balances. Our founders established checks and balances against human passions and the, 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 the tendency to create factions the tendency, of course, that passions can arise because of various circumstances at times and lead multitudes of people all in one direction that might not be the wisest thing. If pure majority rules at every moment and in every instance, you can have people making a jointly bad choice. And if you have no checks, no balances at all, they can rush headlong off a cliff. We have a, instead a divided power of government, two different levels, federal and state. We are the United States of America. So we have 50 different state governments bound together under a federal system. So federalism, recognizing the various state governments, the powers of the states, and there should be less power for the federal, this is how our founders understood it, the Constitution had to be ratified by the states. It wasn't the Constitution creating the states. It was the states creating the Constitution. The Constitution to be amended requires what? It requires ratification from the states. You can't have a constitutional amendment unless three-quarters of the states not to mention two-thirds of their representatives in Congress, agree to it. So we have state governments. Each state government has its executive, has its legislature, has its uh, court system. And then, of course, you have those on the federal government. So three branches of government. So two levels of government, and then three branches of government on both of those levels. That's a lot of checks and balances. And our and our... Our uh, elections are staggered, right? So the founders knew we can't have the full government change all at once. So the representatives in Congress, every two years, they get elected. The senators, every six years. The president, every four years. So you don't have everybody changing all at once because, again, the circumstances of a particular time, an event of history, a charismatic leader could lead people astray. And you have independent judiciary where the judges are serving at the federal level for life. Why aren't they subject to elections every two years? Well, because they're not supposed to be setting policy. They're supposed to be simply judging according to the pre-existing laws and, and the Constitution. Okay, so all of this is in place. One person, one vote. That sounds like an attractive idea, except that it's nowhere in the Constitution. And you look at the ways in which other governments, other democracies around the world, elect their president. It's not simply a majority vote of all the people. And that's what I want to focus on here. The electoral college, the way in which we elect the president. Actually, let me just back up from that for a moment. Because we are the United States, and we've got these 50 state governments, we have 
a form of representation. Let's take in the United States Congress, the key example here, we've got the representatives, of course, that depend, the number of whom depends on the population in each state, right? So you've got your congressional districts uh, throughout each state. Of course, each state has its state government districts as well, right? The state house, the state senate, uh, and then you've got the congressional districts for the federal representation. You've got a lot of a lot of structure going on here. Uh, but then in the Senate, no matter how big or small a state might be, California on the one hand, Rhode Island on the other, you've got two senators from each state. Now, the states are different, right? Life in Rhode Island is not life in Iowa, is not life in Mississippi, is not life in California, is not life in New York City. Life is different. A technological urban area is very different from a sparsely populated rural area in terms of what the people there need, what the priorities are, what the is it agriculture, is it industry, what do they need? The climates are different from state to state. The needs of people living on the on the coast are different from people living in landlocked areas in the middle of the country. The values are different. The history is different. The traditions are different. The religious composition of the demographics are different. Age and, and, and uh, family units and uh, religious beliefs. The Mormons of Utah versus uh, the unchurched, large percentage of unchurched people up in the Pacific Northwest. Friends, we know the diversity of our nation, state by state. And so how would one person govern all the country at the same time? How do you choose a president to govern a vast, vast country all at the same time? It isn't easy. And so our founders wisely put into our system of government, first of all, the U.S. Senate, equal representation from each state. And then let me go to the board because we're going to lay out a few things for you on the board here to understand this system better. So the U.S. Senate, uh, you've got two from each state, no matter how big or small the state might be. And then the representatives, the House of Representatives, You've got as many reps as uh, the population would um, uh, would suggest, right? So, X number, let's say, from state, depending on population. Okay. Depending on the number of congressional delegations. If you combine the number of um, representatives and some states, the smallest states have only one with the number of senators, which is two the number of senators plus the number of representatives equals the number of electoral votes that that state has now, why are electoral votes important? 
Because that, then, is how the president is elected. You have the electoral votes. You have electors that are selected by the voters. And those electors then gather to elect the president and the vice president. So the electoral votes, the electoral college, is how these presidential elections work. It is not how many votes do we have across the country for one candidate, how many votes do we have across the country for the other candidate. It is not the popular vote. How many U.S. citizens voted for each candidate? No. It is instead How many electoral or how many electors voted for each candidate? Now, the way that this works in all but two states is that whichever presidential candidate wins the popular vote in that state gets the votes of all the electors. Maine and Nebraska have it so that it can be divided. The electoral votes of that particular state can end up being divided between the two candidates depending on how the congressional districts voted. But basically you have a situation where when you go to the polls in a presidential election and you're voting, let's say like, uh, uh, like uh, the last time for Biden or for, for, for Trump or the time before that for Trump or for Hillary, uh, you're not voting directly for them. You are voting for your state's electors who will then gather at a later date and cast their votes for one or the other. But if the majority of people in your state vote for Trump, all the electors in your state have their electoral votes go uh, to him. That's the scenario, that's the method that our founders established. Again, why? Because as we already noted, the states have to have um, adequate representation. And by the fact that it's done this way, the candidates have to look at all the states. You have to look at diverse states because you have to govern diverse states. You have to look at the concerns of the people who aren't like you because you're going to have to govern the people who aren't like you. Maybe your background is city life, urban concerns. You understand urban concerns and urban values but you're also going to be the president of the most rural areas in America, and you have to appeal to them too. Unless enough of them vote for you, 
then you may not get to be elected president. Why? Because a state is only going to have the number of electoral votes as the number of their representatives plus two senators. So the small, the, the least amount of electoral votes that a state uh, is able to have is three. Uh, but they may have 53, like California, uh, or more, again, depending on how the census uh, uh, might change things every 10 years. You have to look at all the diverse states because you're going to have to govern all the diverse states. That's why this system works. Going back again to the question of factions, as St. Paul writes uh, to the Galatians, you may get a charismatic leader, let's say, uh, who appeals to the, uh, you know, the values of, um, of some of our biggest cities. I want to give you some numbers here in terms of population to show you how this could go wrong if we didn't have the system of the Electoral College. Let me give you some numbers here of populations. New York City. You know how many people are living there right now? I grew up just north of New York City. We've got 8.6 million people in one city. Los Angeles, another uh, gigantic city, right? We're talking about 4 million. Now, we could, we could break this down in any number of ways and take the big cities. We've got 4 million. We've got 8.6 million in these two cities. You think they kind of have similar values, right? And those values go kind of in the left direction, right? Okay. Overall, you're talking here about 12.6 million people. Okay, so keep your eye on that number for a second. And let's look at the population of some of the states, just some of them. States which sometimes in these elections are, uh, are, are swing states. Now, every state counts. It's just that some states have decided earlier where they're going to lean, red or blue. Uh, every state can change, however, with time. Some states are in flux in such a way that they're considered electorally swing states. They may go one way or another in an election. But let's look at a couple of states. Ohio, the whole state. 11.7 million. I'm going to forgive a few more here. Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa. Let me give you some numbers. Georgia's 10.8 million. Michigan, 9.9 million. Wisconsin, 5.9. And Iowa, 3.1. What does that mean? New York City dwarfs the entire population of Wisconsin. So theoretically, if we had just popular vote nationwide, let's just count up the number of people who vote from coast to coast, no matter why they vote, no matter where they vote, tally them up, and whoever gets more votes for president wins, New York City can wash out the very 
different kind of concerns that all the residents of Wisconsin may have in a presidential election. And yet when the president is elected, is he president of Wisconsin just as much as he's president of New York City? Of course. Los Angeles can wash out the electoral significance of the entire state of Iowa. Are their values the same? Are their circumstances the same? How do you make the little guy count? You set up an electoral college where you say, okay, no matter how many people vote in New York City, if all 8.6 million of them vote, or if just half of them vote, the fact of the matter is New York has its number of electoral votes, no matter how many or, or they are, depends on the number of congressional uh, districts. And it doesn't go beyond that. It doesn't go beyond that. Whatever the majority of the people in New York say, that's where their electoral votes will go. But whether that majority consists of half the voters or three quarters of the voters or 100% of the voters, whether the number of voters in New York dwarfs Iowa or Wisconsin won't matter. The number won't in the end dwarf them because it's limited by the electoral votes that they have. And guess what? Wisconsin and Iowa have their electoral votes too. And if they go in the opposite direction, now they're in play. Now they're in play. You see, this is how the Electoral College not only enables them to have a voice, but requires that the presidential candidate appeal to them too. That person's going to learn to have to listen and compromise and negotiate and consider things that maybe they wouldn't consider, not maybe, they definitely wouldn't consider, if they could just win the election by spending all their time in New York City and Los Angeles swaying the states of New York and California, then, hey, now I'm president of the United States. How can you be president of the United States? Because then you're president of Louisiana, too, and Mississippi and uh, Iowa and Nebraska and Wyoming and North Dakota and Montana, you see what I'm saying. You know how Hillary Clinton got her popular vote um, superior margin in the 2016 election? You know where she got it from? New York and Chicago. That's where their popular vote lead came from. It was not, however, translated into an electoral vote lead, nor should it have been. The other thing, and let me go back to sit down here and give you a couple of, of final thoughts here. Consider it, because there is a move towards this. It's a very bad idea. There is a move towards having a national popular vote. Now, you can't just wipe away a constitutional provision. This is an end run around the Electoral College. It's by a, a state deciding if enough states decide it, the state decides that its electoral votes would go with whatever the national popular vote is under the idea that the Constitution, of course, gives to the states the ability to set how they will elect their electors. All right. Right now, the electors are elected by a popular vote of the state. 
Strange idea, this national popular vote compact, because basically what it's saying is that the throw the state can throw away the will of its own voters if the national popular vote goes the opposite way. The state will just throw away the will of its voters and go with, well, basically what the big cities decide. You see how this is an inherent disadvantage to uh, rural areas and more conservative uh, values. But in any case, bad idea to go to a national popular vote. Because then think, for example, for a moment about if there were fraudulent activity in an election. The fact that you have an electoral college limits the power of any one state to sway the whole country. It limits it doesn't take it away. In fact, it makes sure that it's never taken away from any state. And yet it makes sure that no state exercises unlimited or excessive sway over the rest of the country. And as that is true with legitimate votes, so it is true with illegitimate votes, because now it increases the power of fraud. It increases the motivation for cheating in a particular state. If that excessive number of votes, let's say that somebody has a scheme to get more and more illegal votes in a particular state, now it would sway the whole nation because it's increasing the popular vote. And in the end, the popular vote is the final, has the final say and so you see it gives more of a motivation for fraud, and it's harder to de detect where the fraud is coming from. Whereas, again, if you're capped, if each state is capped by its number of electoral votes, no matter how many actual voters are voting, well, then whatever, however many of those votes are brought about by fraud, hypothetically, that state cannot, it, it, that state then has a limited influence on the rest of the country. Well, friends, I hope this helps you a little bit. There's so much more that can be said about the Electoral College and should be said. There's a lot of good articles and books out there. I wanted to bring this up tonight just to get the wheels turning and just to get you thinking and talking a little bit more about this. Because right now the focus, of course, is the midterms, but the general, uh, the presidential race will be right around the corner. And the folks on the other side, frustrated with conservative victories, and there will be more of them in this midterm election, are going to keep talking about this. Oh, let's get rid of the Electoral College and have a national popular vote. Remember, our Constitution says nothing about a national popular vote. Our founders were completely against the idea, and it wasn't because of some uh, racism that they supposedly had it was because of the wisdom of a of a system like this to give representation to vastly different states and to put a check on human passions and factions let's pray father we thank you for the wisdom of our founders we, we ask lord that we would have the humility the good sense to pause and to think and to learn and to consider why our system is structured this way and not to jump to conclusions or listen to uh, uh sound bites or 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 left-wing ideology help us lord understand exercise preserve and be grateful for the electoral system that we have
which is in place, Lord God, in so many other countries as well, so many other democracies as well. Bless us now as we uh, continue to work in these midterm elections for many, many victories, as we work indeed to save America. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, friends. Thanks for joining me. F.R. Frank Pavone on Truth Social, on Getter, on all the major platforms, Right Side Broadcasting at RSB Network. Stay connected with us. Let's continue to motivate and encourage each other in praying for America and in saving America. Join me again next time. God bless you. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.